Good evening, dear ones. Uh, tonight I want to talk about engaging ourselves in our world with, with compassion. And the subtitle of it is The Mindful Path to Freedom and Justice. Engaging ourselves with compassion is one of the more difficult challenges for many of us on the spiritual path. I know it certainly has been for me. But once we are able to do this, it's so much easier to engage our world with compassion, and that's what I want to talk about tonight. What I have found is, and what we've been talking about all weekend, really, is that self-compassion lies at the heart of our well-being, at the heart of compassion for others, and really at the heart of our ability to love and be loved, which is just as an important ability as loving. It's also the foundation for fearlessness, and it's one of the most helpful threads of a mindfulness practice. Often we block it with the habit energy of, of our conditioning, either consciously or, or unconsciously. Uh, a while ago now, I spent some time uh, with Tara, and we were doing what friends do, sort of trading titles of books that we liked, and I'm going to tell on her, she wanted me to watch Breaking Bad. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, when I told my friends that, they said, Tara, really? <laughs> So, but she had, uh, she recommended a really good book to me uh, called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And I know she gave a Dharma talk on this, and mine's going to have a slightly different twist. I'm going to use the parable. Um, but I'm going to play with the parable some. So, in my story, there's no father, there's a transgender parent. <laughs> and. There aren't two sons. There's an elder daughter and a younger son. Uh, and I think most of you kind of, oh, by the way, the, the parent's name is Joe. And I think most of you kind of know the outline of the story. Uh, the younger son asks for the inheritance from, from his parent and goes off and lives a life of total debauchery, right, just... Slop and torture to the max, man. Uh, and uses up all his resources, eventually ends up living. I, I was looking out my window when I was doing this talk, and I was thinking, um, well, he ended up living with the goats and the chickens and the pigs <laughs> and, uh, you know, eating what, what they eat. And it, it occurred to him that, wow, uh, I've really hit bottom. I could really, I could go home and work for Joe, that uh, maybe Joe would let me do that. And even though I don't deserve it, I could beg Joe for a job. In the meantime, the elder daughter uh, has stayed home. And her entire life, she's been the good girl. Uh, she's done what's expected of her, and she's continued to do what's expected of her. She's run the farm. She's taking care of and, and attending to her parent. So we have, the, we have these two children playing out two very different roles. And so all of a sudden the younger son shows up at home and uh, Joe says to the household staff, go slaughter our best calf for the celebration. We need the finest meal. Get out the best clothes and jewelry, and adorn him with them. And the elder daughter is looking on like, what the hell? You know, here I've done everything I'm supposed to do. Uh, I've been a good girl. I've stayed here while this brother of mine has gone off and lived a life of debauchery. Never has my parent offered to slay me a calf or have a feast in celebration of me, just filled with resentment. And later on in the, in the evening, her parent is out in the uh, courtyard, and the two meet, and some words are exchanged. And uh, Joe turns to her and says, Honey, everything that I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. And the real tragedy of this story is that neither child can access the unconditional love 
of the parent that is right there for the taking. So the younger son has a sense of inferiority and not just a lack of self-esteem, but a sense of shame and unworthiness. Like many of us, because he didn't know how to handle his suffering, he tried to cover it up with consumption. He spent his inheritance feeding various addictions to try to avoid the feeling that there was something fundamentally wrong with him. And how many of us have a similar current running through us of feeling bad or deficient to some degree or another, living with some degree of internal chatter of of self-judgment and self-criticism, falling into the trap of believing we are not enough. And we can be stuck in what Tara calls trance, a trance of unworthiness without our awareness of it. And in some subtle or not-so-subtle way, we are like the youngest son. We don't believe we are worthy of love and the self-compassion that would enable us to access all the love available to us is missing. The elder daughter has struck a different bargain with life and developed a different strategy to cover up her suffering. She has chosen to follow the rules and expectations of others and is resentful for not getting what she feels to be her just reward for doing so. She feels she does what she feels she deserves in return for her sacrifices, in return for being the good girl. She has excelled in the ways her younger brother hasn't. Though she has lived a just and righteous life, she's extremely resentful of others for not rewarding her for her sacrifices. In addition to being the good daughter and doing everything expected of her, The elder daughter's strategies to avoid suffering have been perfectionism and achievement, two much more acceptable strategies of covering up shame than her younger brothers. And she's often frustrated helping run the farm because others don't live up to her expectations, and she can't understand why they can't get it right. If they would just do it her way, everything would fall into place so much better. But no matter how much she personally achieves, no matter how good a girl she has been and continues to be as a grown woman, throughout her life, no matter how many of her external goals she meets, she's still not peaceful, content, or happy. Through a different door in a different form than her younger brother, she too has become attached to a wounded self. Part of her doesn't want to give it up and part of her doesn't know how to give it up. Like her younger brother, identification with the ego is still front and center. She lacks compassion for herself and others. Like her younger brother, she's disconnected from others. But unlike her brother, she enjoys something he doesn't. High self-esteem, because she certainly looks better in the eyes of of others. However, self-compassion and self-esteem are not the same thing. Self-esteem is about evaluating oneself positively. Like low low self-esteem, it's tied to comparing ourselves with others and often evaluating ourselves as better in some way. And Although often successful in the outer world, those of us with high self-esteem are often competitive and defensive, which also blocks true connection. While self-esteem is about evaluating oneself positively, self-compassion is about relating to oneself with a kind and forgiving attitude. One of my friends in this room, through a conversation I had with her, inspired me to think about how we are often engaging in love as a form of a transaction of some kind. And this comes totally from our conditioning. So many of us share some form of the same tragedy that both children have in common. They can only experience and think of love as a transaction of some kind. One feels inferior and the other feels superior. And as a result, neither one of them can avail themselves of the unconditional love being freely offered to them. Spiritual liberation requires so much more than this. It requires being free from projections of inferiority and superiority. And the book got me thinking about faith, which you know is an unusual thing to talk about in Buddhism, and the ways that I've blocked a connection with something deeper than myself, blocked my ability to step into all the love waiting for me. 
I started thinking about how we are trained from the time we are young children to approach both love and faith as a transaction of some kind. We learn it even in loving families, often in a more subtle way. Initially, we learn that if we behave in a certain way, then we might get approval, love, and nurturing from our caretakers. And we develop our, our winning formulas, our strategies in life by engaging in this transaction, and it's not all bad. Some of it serves us really well. It's just that at some point it reaches a point of diminishing returns. If I do this, then I expect you will do that. As adults, we often consciously or unconsciously approach our intimate relationships as well as our other relationships as a transaction. And as a result, sometimes one or both par partners unwitting, unwittingly assume roles that are unsatisfying to them in some way. And we approach many things in life as a transaction of some kind, including our relationship with whatever we think of as the divine, with what we call our Buddha nature, God, pure awareness, emptiness, the energy of love, or whatever we think of as true refuge. As children, we often start a relationship with the divine as some sort of transaction. God, if you just do this for me, then I'll blank. And as we get a little older, it becomes a little less blatant, but there's often still some form of show me or prove it uh, involved. But what if we really don't have to do anything at all to earn love except get out of our own way? What if we were making some form of the same mistake that the children made with their parent? What if we were simply blocking all the love available to us? Like both children, many of us don't know how to avail ourselves of the refuge that's right there in front of us if we can just remove the roadblocks that we have erected. We mistakenly think of our right to come home, to step into love and freedom, as a transaction of some kind that we haven't yet done enough to earn. And faith, no matter what the spiritual framework, requires a deeper understanding of love one that goes beyond seeing it as a transaction, however subtly, and instead recognizes it as a birthright. I have a, a really good friend of, of mine who I spend quite a bit of time with, and she's the daughter of a minister, and she, she's been Buddhist for many, many years. But you know, she's just so amazing. And so one day I said, Mary, did you believe in God when you were a little girl? And she said, I knew God loved me. And I said, that explains Mary to myself. You know, that explains Mary. So I don't know if faith is the right word for this, but it is the possibility I feel when I am connected to a larger reality, when I can wholeheartedly sit in the mystery and vast space of not knowing, while at the same time feel my connection with all that is. And it comes with resting my mind in the vastness of the space outside the red dot. For some of us, it's associated with some or many holy beings. And for some of us, it's the life energy of love. Personally, I've never known how to describe it because it's larger than words, but I know when it's present. Along with it comes a developing willingness to live with ambiguity to live inside the questions and leave behind the comfort of answers, to be able to live in non-duality where we can hold two seemingly contradictory things at once. We also experience a developing willingness to try to offer our heart to whatever is happening in any given moment, whether it's joyful or challenging. The willingness to believe, the willingness to believe in the holiness of our imperfections. I certainly see both the younger son and elder daughter in myself, and I suspect that many of us find ourselves on a continuum of some kind with the younger brother on one side and the elder sister on the other side, and we may even go back and forth sometimes. Whenever I work with people in prison, one of the questions I always get around to asking is, what prison were you in before you were in this one? 
because most of us are in some kind of involuntary prison of our own making that we do have the ability to walk out of. And the good news for us is that we have the opportunity to step out of the patterns that keep us from accessing love and compassion, the opportunity to incline our minds towards something different. In fact, we practice to deepen our connection with something larger than our egocentric selves, to return to true self through awareness, to dissolve our identity with the ego, to experience love, forgiveness, understanding, and compassion. So much of this path is about dissolving our ego identification so we can experience our connection and interdependence with one another. One of the most important insights we can have is the realization that so much of what we believe about ourselves, others, and the world are simply stories we have been telling ourselves. We can choose to understand our condition. We can actually choose to let go of a wounded self. We can choose how to reframe and have insight about our past conditioning, but in the service of freedom not in the service of telling ourselves limiting stories of who we are. So the question is, will we dare to believe we are enough? Questions that deserve our attention are, what would make me enough? And when will I be enough? I want to talk about four ways of planting and cultivating seeds of self-compassion that I've found helpful in my own life. First, um, I had to stop searching for it in other people. Uh, how often are we disappointed in others for not being able to satisfy our deepest longings? And it's so common for us to start out searching for it in others. And we spend a lot of time being disappointed in others for either not being able to provide it or not giving permission to us to provide it for ourselves. Second, we can be aware each present moment of what we are inclining our minds toward. Changing our habit energies feels counterintuitive to us because it requires something beyond self-soothing. And we resist the vulnerability that comes with it and substitute temporary self-soothing strategies that don't provide any help in the long run and don't lead to affirming integrity. You know you're on the right track if you don't feel a residue of regret about what you're doing and if you feel your inner integrity is being affirmed by your choice. So what are the conditions in our lives when we experience a deep sense of connection and interdependence? It's important to identify those conditions. My teacher, uh, Ty, used to always say, you know, if you're only grateful when you, when, uh, when you do, or if you, if you only are aware of the times when you have a toothache, you miss all the times you don't have a toothache to enjoy, to be at peace, to rest in. So what are those conditions in our lives when we experience a deep sense of connection and interdependence? How can we create those conditions? How can we surround ourselves with, put ourselves in environments and surround ourselves with people who help us incline our minds toward those things? You know, I've heard of this gratitude practice for years, and I've gone... <laughs> For, for years, uh, and uh, I, finally, I finally gave in. I was desperate enough to try anything. And, you know, I'll, I'll be damned, but I found myself actually looking for things I was grateful for each day. Uh, at first, it was just so I could share them with my friend. But, you know, I found that once I started inclining my mind toward that direction, it really did make a huge, huge difference. The third thing is that we can choose to be a finder and not a seeker. And sometimes this requires a leap of faith on our part. And faith is a radical trust that home has always been there waiting for us to simply choose to come home. 
And that leap of faith requires daring to believe that we are actually complete and whole as we are. And that there is nothing fundamentally wrong with us. The wonderful thing about a mindfulness practice is it doesn't matter what happens because it's all simply grist for the mill. Every event simply becomes a learning opportunity. And whatever occurs is simply material that is gracefully woven into the tapestry of our lives. And so we learn with practice. We develop the ability to accept whatever the present moment contains. No matter how pleasant or unpleasant, no matter how wonderful or how painful. I've heard people in recovery often refer to it as the ability to wear life like a loose-fitting cloak. So we can actually choose choose to believe that we are fundamentally good and that we can connect with that goodness, with our divine nature. We can move closer to accepting and honoring all parts of ourselves while knowing that almost everybody shares the challenges of having our humanity. The more painful causes and conditions that have shaped our lives stand side by side with our divinity. That's what this human journey is all about. So what if the brothers, instead of being bystanders, could walk step by step toward the unconditional love of their parent, walk toward the reconciliation, forgiveness, and inner healing waiting for them? Will we take that leap of faith that that kind of unconditional love is ours for the taking? Or will we be bystanders like the brother and sister? who unwittingly block themselves from the deepest gift available to them. So the fourth tool for planting and cultivating seeds of compassion is that with awareness, we can actually practice changing the internal voices in our heads. Uh, My major teacher with respect to self-compassion has been learning to work more constructively with bouts of, of depression as they show up in my life. And a few years ago, I went through a breakup that I did not see coming. And it was a time of impenetrable darkness for me. I was paralyzed by my grief and depression. And there's probably no time when I felt the trance of unworthiness more than that. And and there's no time when connection with others has been blocked more. And many of us have experienced some type of the dark night of the soul through grief. Uh, Most of us have experienced the grief or the loss of a person we have deeply loved, either through separation, illness, or death. And one loss can activate all the other losses and bring up some of life's most painful, unresolved experiences. Therein lies the opportunity and the challenge. Deep loss and and grief can also challenge our faith by stripping away any sense of certainty we had about the spiritual path. Sometimes along the path, we are humbled by being stripped of our pretenses and defenses and left feeling raw and exposed. And therein lies not just the challenge, but the opportunity. We can no longer hide. We can no longer even make the effort to look good to others. We have no choice but to let go, surrender, and take our seat in our own experience. And therein lies the opportunity for new life and growth. As painful as these states are, there's always the opportunity to turn the garbage into the compost of new growth. And the practice challenge during these times when love and trust fail us, when a devastating illness happens, when someone precious to us dies, is what will we do with the suffering that comes from our heartbreak? As painful as these states are, we need to learn how to hold them. How will we hold it? And how will we work with it? How do we turn the power of suffering toward new life? Parker Palmer says the way we answer these questions is critical because violence in the shape of some form of aggression and harm is what happens when we don't know what else to do with our suffering. When we feel the hurt and trauma of deep pain, sometimes we attempt to launch ourselves like a grenade at what we mistakenly consider the source of our pain. And some of us have the opposite response. 
opposite response. We withdraw into silence and avoidance. So the first step for me in, in my own journey was to accept that these bouts of depression were not something that would just go away. I wasn't going to have a deep insight and work through something that would make them magically disappear. Darn it. Um, however, like other mind states, I did have enough experience in the practice to know that they are impermanent, to know they come and go. They wax and wane. And although I've had bouts with depression, I've had other experiences of joy, contentment, peace, experiences of resting and oneness, of feeling a deep interconnection with all that is, times of unhesitating, compassion and kindness, times of stillness and peace, inwardly born. So impermanence means deeply understanding that no matter how blissful or how painful, this too shall pass. Those of you that are in a good space, this too shall pass. Those of you that feel like you're incarcerated, this too shall pass. Um, regardless of how pleasant or unpleasant it is, this too shall pass. And if we truly learn this lesson, we won't create the chains of craving with pleasant experiences and chains of aversion with unpleasant experiences. We will learn how to get more skilled at not identifying with the mind states that come and go and trust that both joy and pain have their own kernel of tenderness right in the heart of the experience. The second and probably most important key for me was not just to accept these bouts of depression, but to really practice substituting love and compassion for aversion. I started to pay very close attention to my self-talk. I started to really pay attention to the harsh internal chatter. What's wrong with you? Buck up. Get over yourself. You must deserve this. If you were a good Dharma teacher, this wouldn't happen. There was shame and secrecy around it. And I started to substitute different messages for those. Literally. Oh, honey, I'm so sorry you have to experience this. It's hard to take your seat in this experience. Good for you for being willing to do it. And at first it felt really clumsy. But eventually I started to sincerely mean it with my whole heart. And I started to experience compassion for myself rather than aversion. Didn't happen overnight. Uh, so whether it's forgiveness, compassion, stillness, peace, love, or any other of our noble desires, and so many of our deepest longings are noble desires, it might be necessary in the beginning to simply pray for the ability to point our hearts in the direction of it. This was very challenging for me in the beginning because I'd watered the seeds of aversion to it for so long. In fact, my original name for this state was Jack Frost. Uh, Jack Frost is also a transgender, by the way. So I would begin to feel the tentacles of Jack Frost reaching out for me, and it would begin to almost beg please, not this again. First I would deny it. Oh, this can't be happening. It's not happening. And then, please, not this again. And the aversion was so strong, I didn't even want to acknowledge its presence to myself, yet less to others. And as you are witnessing, I'm not hiding it anymore. You know? Before enlightenment, I'm depressed. After enlightenment, I'll be depressed. That's just mine to work with. <laughs> you know? It's just mine. Uh, So uh, as I've begun to meet them in a more conscious way and a more intentional, tender, and, and curious way, them meaning Jack Frost, as I've warmed up to Jack, Jack Frost often morphs into the softer and more feminine Jackie Frosty. Uh, <laughs> you know, and... Jackie is much easier to cuddle up with and play with than, than, than Jack is. But, you know, Jack serves a purpose, too. So now, rather than, oh, God, Jack Frost is coming for me again, it's more like, ah, my old friend is paying me another visit. Hmm, what are they trying to protect me from? And that investigation, what are they trying to protect me from, has been very helpful. 
a friend trying to protect me from something. Rather than denying it, suppressing it, or pushing it away with aversion, I've begun to practice allowing myself to totally feel the tender vulnerability of the crest of the pain, to fully experience the ouch, and to send myself great tenderness as soon as I start doing what I now call circling the drain. So when either Jack or Jackie appear, I've learned to send love to myself. And for lack of a better way to describe it, cheerleader voices of approval for my developing ability and willingness to take my seat in my own experience and no longer deny their appearance or push them away. Jack is like somebody you meet whom you initially have some type of aversion to or dislike, but you hang in there with them and you really start to appreciate who they are. And with the tenderness of self-compassion, I've come to appreciate and understand what both Jack and Jackie have to offer me. So I'm trying to communicate what self-compassion feels like and how to cultivate it. It won't appear by going through the motions or simply by repeating phrases to ourselves, especially if they feel mechanical. And the tenderness that arises from fully accepting and greeting with goodwill the challenging mind state or mental formation that exists is the essence of self-compassion. And I find myself now practicing it with little irritations. I was telling one of my groups that although I'm a really athletic person, I'm a really clumsy person. I drop a lot of things and I spill a lot of things. And... uh, (laughs) And I have started practicing rather than going, oh, my God, you are so unmindful. I can't believe you did that again. You're going to be late. Um, What I try to do now is I say, oh, I'm so sorry. You intended to be on time. Good for you for giving yourself the space to not have to rush, even though I'm rushing, you know. So I've just learned to practice it with these little irritations of, of spilling the cereal on the floor, of, you know, the adrenaline and anxiety that arises when I can't find my phone or I don't know where the keys are. Uh, You know, I know I'm going too fast when I'm looking for the phone I'm talking on. (laughs) Which has happened to me. (laughs) Yeah. We Dharma teachers have it all together. (laughs) So exposing and and shining a light on our tender beings, you know, is really the foundation of fearlessness. So much of what constitutes this practice is becoming aware of how our past difficulties manifest in the form of habit energies and learning how to work with them. A guy by the name of uh, Tim Desman in the Tietnan Han tradition hit it right on the head. He describes self-compassion this way. Open acceptance of our distress without aversion, sincere empathy for our pain, followed by heartfelt messages of goodwill toward ourselves and deep appreciation for our efforts. So we can not only forgive ourselves, but appreciate ourselves for developing strategies to survive, sincerely knowing that we did the best we could with the tools available to us at the time. Again, true acceptance leads to the understanding that it is not our fault, but it is our responsibility. And the gift of compassion follows the gift of self-compassion so naturally As we access tenderness and compassion for ourselves, it it grows organically with others. And with self-compassion, we begin to glimpse the spaciousness of the equanimity that's required to fully experience the the quivering heart. I've I've spent one entire retreat learning how to talk to... uh, Not just learning how to talk to... The, my little girl who was five years old and picturing her and bringing it up, but learning how to let her talk to me, uh, really learning how to let it go back and forth. And then I tried it with the adolescent. 
ouch. I was such a punk as an adolescent. You know, it, it really, um, I'm still really working with this one. I still really have to ask myself, um, how can I express love to that adolescent who's so armored and, and closed? Um, and it, it's been a wonderful inquiry. I'm still not as far along with that one, but I'm really enjoying the journey. So as I started enjoying the journey, La has been asking me for a while to teach a teen retreat, and I've gone, no, <laughs> absolutely not. Even as a cop, dealing with teens was so challenging for me. Um, so what did I what did I do? I called a, I called La up and I told them that uh, I'd like to do a teen retreat sometime. Uh, so it, it's it's in, it's incredible how how this works and the gift of of compassion for others follows the gift of self compassion so naturally. Um, one of the gifts of my dark night of the soul is. I didn't flinch at anybody suffering anymore. That was such an incredibly gift. Um, so as I could access tenderness and compassion for myself, I, I noticed that it started to grow organically with, with others. Um, and that was, that was really great. So we're able to identify more with others, with their individual histories of suffering, trauma, isolation and abandonment. We've all been there in some way. We naturally develop the capacity to no longer flinch, hide, or protect ourselves from the suffering of others. So when we no longer have to buck up in our own eyes, we don't need to demand that others do it either. We can just let them be. One of the more profound shifts that comes with the individual transformation and healing that accompanies a mindfulness practice is the shift over time from aversion to kindness, the shift from aversion to being friendly, the shift from being guarded to being soft and tender. And the shift has to first take place with oneself before it can genuinely take place in our relationships with others. It's only the tender and supple heart that can break open and hold suffering in a way that opens to new ways of being. And what I found is that true compassion is forged in these fires of our most painful challenges. The deeper the wound, the more room for the light that will eventually show up to fill it. We wake up one day and realize we have not only survived, but there are new depths of being. Amazing and tender leaves of new growth are sprouting. There's less fear. We've not only survived the brokenness, but been tenderized by it. And it's the transformation of our deepest pain that enables us to be of service to others. We learn how to get out of our own way to access what has always been waiting for us. And when we are able to do that, we begin to catch glimpses of not just being willing to take in unconditional love, but being able to offer it. This is, this is the, the great paradox here. Um, that it, probably we all know this intuitively. So often we try to give it before we learn how to receive it. And giving and receiving are both important skills. You know, we, we need to learn how to balance those. And if we're further down the continuum on one side, we need to learn how to balance it with, with the other. Because when the gift we give to others is an integral and valued part of our own journey, when it comes from the organic reality of inner work, it will renew itself and it will be limitless in nature. We discover a greater capacity to take in other sorrows and joys, not in spite of our grief, depression, or other challenges, not in spite of our brokenness, but because of it. And in our collective life, compassion asks us to build bridges with others. And this is the essence of the mindful path to freedom and justice. We take up the spiritual path because of our yearning and desire to be liberated and whole. And certainly some of that work is individual. 
and unique to each of us as we have our own unique museums of causes and conditions that contribute to our suffering. Personal relationships where our habit energies are constantly being triggered and activated is an important part of this path. We experience this in intimate relationships, in friendships, in work relationships, and many of the arenas that we participate in daily. However, this is just part of the path. If we understand interdependence, we also understand that our personal liberation is entwined with everyone else's liberation. And collective suffering, whether we recognize it or not, is in ourselves. We cannot fully liberate ourselves without liberating others. I'm trying to address race in just about every Dharma talk I give these days because it's such a place of wounding in our country right now. Um, It's such a place of systemic oppression, so in need of awareness, attention, and healing. And certainly the larger Buddhist community in this country is feeling the growing pains of embarking on the path to heal racism. And those of us on fire about it are taking up this issue not because we have a desire to help those poor marginalized people, but because we yearn for the viewpoints and experiences we have missed as a result of white privilege. And we understand we too have been wounded by the racist oppressor inside of us. Most of us easily discover the victim in us, but we may not be as familiar with the oppressor. And growth comes from working with both. Here's a poem by by my teacher, Ty. Call me by my true names. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow because even today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with wings still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear pond, and I am also the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true name so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true name so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open the door of compassion. So this journey is not just about waking up individually, but also about us waking up together. It's about understanding that with all forms of oppression and discrimination, we are missing rich and important viewpoints in the journey of waking up. As white people, as straight people, as cisgender people, we won't have the ability to be truly welcoming until we take steps to educate ourselves and prepare ourselves to be truly welcoming. Because if we expect people, especially people who have been marginalized and discriminated against, to come in and be like us, we are expecting them to commit a form of internalized treason. And, you know, white privilege is just so much a part of ourselves. Uh, We do this all the time. Our intentions can be good while the outcome is still very painful for others, and we are often oblivious to it. And this is what constitutes what we call a microaggression. 
And now we have a new frontier in front of us with the, the transgender community. What a gift they're giving us with the opportunity to have more choice about gender. Man, I'm doing things to make sure I'm cool all the time now that I wouldn't have dared done before. Um, I'm just owning it. Uh, so that, and, you know, and a lot of it is because of my relationships with them. Um, they've, it's been such a gift uh, to be able to choose where I am and want to be on the continuum of what is traditionally considered male or female. And, uh, you know, I was certainly a pioneer in my own right as uh, an out lesbian and one of the first women on, on the police department. We won't even go there. <laughs> uh, so I know what it, what it means to be a pioneer. Uh, and I know a new kind of freedom is being created, but as is often the case that those creating it are paying a price. And we need to prepare and educate ourselves to, to welcome them also. By not acknowledging difference, we so often unwittingly exaggerate it. The, the mirrors in Western Buddhism have been limited because the majority of our practice groups and sanghas are middle-class, white, straight people, so we are only seeing certain aspects of life reflected. And by virtue of having to survive, people in marginalized cultures understand our mirrors, but we don't understand theirs. So we need all the mirrors. And sometimes when we take up these issues or other forms of social engagement, some people say, this isn't what I came here for. I came for the Dharma. I just want to practice the Dharma. I get enough of this crap out in the world. I'm part of every day. I want refuge. I just want one place to nourish myself. And if we start talking about these things, I will no longer get the nourishment I'm coming here for. There's a feeling of this is not my issue, but this is about easing our own suffering as much as easing the suffering of others, whether we see it or not. And that involves looking at the root causes of suffering. And in this country, isn't racism a root cause of suffering? As such, it's such an important part of practice because racism is something that so hurts all of us. What I've found is doing race awareness work is very complex, very raw, very painful. And, you know, if we take this work on, it's just like any kind of personal growth. We're going to feel growing pains. Most of us have deep wounds activated by simply being in our own social circles and groups. And, of course, we're going to be deeply activated by being in a community that is truly trying to learn about what it means to be interrelated. It will require tremendous compassion for ourselves and each other as we work together to understand and eliminate the root causes of not just structural racism, but structural oppression of all kinds. And as women, we've all experienced sexism, so we have a head start. You know, a, a lot, it's no accident that a lot of civil rights movements in this country have been started by women. And I, I think if we can go at this, if we can ground the work in the Dharma and find a way to give each other room, be truly interested in each other's perspectives and experiences and allow for mistakes, we'll, we'll start getting somewhere. Often we want some sort of guarantee of safety when we're working for either individual or collective transformation. However, change of any kind requires the courage to be out there on our edges. And sometimes when people say they don't feel safe, I think they should substitute, I feel discomfort arising, which naturally does when we're working with our edges. And with individual change, the people we have surrounded ourselves with often don't offer their approval for our movement toward our deepest longings. And with collective change, we will encounter another form of disapproval as we begin to shine a light on hidden and unconscious agreements and bring them into the arena of conscious dialogue. I also want to really stress that it's important to learn how to take care of ourselves in the process of developing an engaged practice. We can't be of service to others without prioritizing our own being. And this requires something that's very difficult, especially for us as women, 
It requires being a good steward of what we have to offer others. Compassion without self-care is always going to be incomplete. So we have these terms floating around now, like compassion fatigue, um, burnout, etc. And I'm convinced that burnout results not from giving too much, but from trying to give what we don't have. So we have to take responsibility for our own care. It's so important in terms of what to give others. You know, and maybe we're not here to change the world. Maybe the world is here to change us. And maybe we can flip the foreground and background in so many ways. I want to end with a poem called The Invitation by Uriah Mountain Dreamer, a Native American elder. It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for and if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dreams, for the adventure of being alive. It doesn't interest me what planets are squaring your moon. I want to know if you have touched the center of your own sorrow, if you have been opened by life's betrayals or have become shriveled and closed from fear of further pain. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it or fade it or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine or your own, if you can dance with wildness and let ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes, without cautioning us to be careful, be realistic, or to remember the limitations of being human. It doesn't interest me if the story you are telling me is true. I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself. If you can beat the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul. I want to know if you are trustworthy to yourself. I want to know if you can see beauty even when it is not pretty every day and if you can source from your light its presence. I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine, and still stand on the edge of a lake and shout to the silver of the moon, yes. Doesn't interest me to know where you live or how much money you make. I want to know whether you can get up after a night of grief and despair, weary and bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done for the children. Doesn't interest me who you are or how you came to be here. I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. It doesn't interest me where or what or with whom you have studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else falls away. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep with your empty moments. I wish for you a world of love and compassion. Should I have